going on, guys? Welcome back to Hoop Dreams, the 8-Bit Collective's NBA podcast powered by Audio Technica. I'm your host, Jono Peck, and joining me, we have a special guest, Nick's fan and now Stalger podcast host, Dave Martinson. How you doing, Dave? Jono, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. This is a true honor, man. Uh, the last oh. dance, bringing it home. I know, like... It's like we, we've talked about NBA a couple of times. We did an uh, NBA podcast once a couple of years ago now, I think. Yep. But we are without our usual host, Matt Tilby. He's come down with food poisoning somehow. That is not a joke, given the content of this episode. Uh, he did not eat a pizza delivered by five guys, I'm told. But we wish him the best in his recovery. And I'm, he's really... Uh, I was going to say spewing that he couldn't be here, but that's uh, that's a, a pun that I did not intend. Uh, he really wanted to talk about Dennis Rodman in the WCW, so we'll have to cover off on that. So we'll get straight into, I guess, episode nine of The Last Dance, which we are recapping here in this endless mid-season pause of the NBA. And it kicked off with Reggie Miller talking about his first game against Jordan. Was any of that uh, new to you? And, and I guess it's it's right in character for both of those guys, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think I think Re- Reggie actually quitted himself really well with this. Just, uh, you know, he, obviously he's a talking head now on TV. He has a, the ability to think about this for a while. But like the whole, uh, from that moment on, I only called him Jordan or Black Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> or Black Cat. Quote, yeah. right? And he was so animated when he was talking. So, yeah. As much as I dislike Reggie Miller as a Knicks fan, I thought he, he added a lot to this, honestly. Yeah. And he's, he's a guy that people tend to not like in terms of like his broadcasting. So, he does do a good interview, though. He does tell a good story uh, when he's not overreacting. Yeah, so him, him taunting MJ in, in his first game. And then MJ just coming back and crushing him is kind of, I guess, foreshadowing what would happen for the rest of Reggie's career while MJ was still in the league. But also, just a story we've heard so many times over and over and over through this documentary, right? Like MJ just not needing a whole lot of motivation, especially to start with, but then for someone to actually step up to him. Yeah, I think the the general theme, the, the revolving theme about... Jordan's competitiveness and how they uh, Jason Hare was able to really craft the last dance's narrative around those little slights, those little comments, whether it was Byron Russell or BJ Armstrong once he was in Charlotte, whatever it was, right? Like it, it took one little tick, and like some most people knew not to do it. Like remember Horace Grant a few episodes yeah. back was like <laughs> just shaking his head at that the recollection, but yeah, man, uh, that that's kind of it feels like that's like the source of was source of Jordan's power. Like he was able to tap into that, that savagery. Mm. And what, I mean, it's, it's like old hat at this point by episode nine. Yeah, for sure. And even people who knew better, like uh, BJ Armstrong, still just poking the, poking the bear in that Charlotte series. <laughs> but they, they called the Pacers their toughest opponent. Like MJ said, apart from the Pistons, this was our hardest competition in the East. So how did you view that as, I guess, a Knicks fan of those nineties teams? Yeah, it's funny. I actually didn't. I actually didn't know, know that they they thought that that way. Like, I, honestly, I, I was I was too young to be like watching mm-hmm. this whole this whole Bulls run when it was happening. I I really just know stuff from my dad, and he, he always would say like, as Knicks fan, he's like, "quote like we hated Jordan." Like that was his quote when I told him about the Last Dance. He was like, 
like I don't know if I want to watch this. I would I, I didn't <laughs> like this guy. He, he brought me so much pain, you know. And and the Pacers obviously uh, maybe were a team that didn't quite hit their ceiling as much. Lord Jordan, I guess, did that to a lot of a lot of great teams, a lot of great players. But mm. I feel like we actually kind of moved moved through the Pacers pretty fast and got to the Jazz. But uh, you know, it, it, it was cool seeing uh, Rick Smiths for me because Rick Smiths actually went to college at Marist, which is uh, in my hometown where I grew up, funny enough. Um, just mm. seeing him in the background as this seven-footer, pre-Dirk from Europe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a, a player that a lot of people would have forgotten, the dunking Dutchman, I think Jalen Rose called him, which was great to see. And that Pacers series, like, series um, I guess because it went to seven games is where they come in as being the toughest opponent. Like, that was the first time... Uh, since the Bulls, I guess, had their championship runs begin that they ever had to go that far to, to knock off an opponent. Right. And they were a solid team, like right down the list, like Chris Mullen, you know, Reggie, Jalen yeah. Rose, Mark Jackson. Like it's it's a pretty star-studded lineup. There was not really a weakness there. And um, I think the Bulls, like as, despite having some of the best players in the league, there was a lot of role players there and they they fit the their role perfectly but if you it's a, if you're just looking at like a one-on-one matchup you know Ron Harper up against Mark Jackson or you know Smith's up against Luke Longley or whatever it is there's probably some mismatches there in terms of of what people can do on both ends so i think that probably was um you know what gave the Bulls a bit of trouble, as well as Larry Bird. Like he was coach of the year that year. I remember, like he was coming mm-hmm. in pretty young as a coach in, in terms of like he'd only had a couple of seasons, but really effective straight away. And I love that reaction from Larry that they showed after Reggie hit that crazy triple. Like he he pushed Jordan. He called it a slight nudge yeah. or whatever it was. <laughs> he obviously just throttled him. And hit that shot, and just showing Larry with a stone face on the bench. How great was that? Uh, yeah, no, and obviously testament to Jason once again, just directing it, focusing on the fact that like that was actually like the the key thing. You know, it's like the crowd's all going nuts, all the players are going nuts, and Larry Bird has been there more than anyone else uh, to mm-hmm. that point uh, in that building. Uh, he knew, and this is a great shot. You know, it's like um, even though you know '90s standard deaf footage not always the highest quality, but some of these crowd reactions and, and just shots of the action are so golden, you know? Yeah, and for Jalen Rose to point it out too, when he first said it, I was like, what's he talking about? Why is Larry like that? And they, they did a really great job of um, telling you a lot about Larry, but also a lot about how well Larry knew Michael. And I guess, uh, you know, Bird had been in that position himself. Point eight or whatever there was left on the clock, I can hit a shot in that time. Michael can definitely hit a shot in that time. And it almost went in. So we had the what we call over here the dunny flusher where it like spins around like a toilet bowl and it <laughs> right. just yep. and it just flew out. But um we had a question here from our usual host, Matt Tilby, where do you rank Reggie amongst uh the people who never quite won the championship all time? Hmm, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, he's not. He's definitely not the first person I think of. Like I think mm. of, I think of like Barkley, you know, Carl Malone, uh, yeah. second leading scorer. You know, there, there's some other people that, that come to mind uh, sooner, but 
you know, I think, I think, uh, you know, you, you look at the career numbers for Reggie and it's almost like he underachieved a little bit in terms of those totals. He might be, could have actually put up bigger numbers and maybe made a, hmm. a bigger statistical, uh, case if he wasn't on some of these stacked teams especially early on where he wasn't being asked to shoulder so much to load but I mean his clutch his clutch resume is what lasts right and I think that's why people have so much respect for him so in terms of someone who we think probably could have gotten it done and and could you know had what it uh, takes to accomplish that if it wasn't Mm. for Jordan yeah I guess he's up there yeah I think you have to give it to Barkley Malone and Patrick Ewing as far as that like 90s era goes for the people that you would have you know looked back at their basketball reference page or whatever and just been like Mm -hmm. oh they didn't win a championship that's like shocking probably to young people that know these guys and how great they were they've seen the highlights but you know playing at the same time as jordan's dynasty Mm -hmm. that's just the effect of what happened you know um a few people snuck through with the rockets and I guess the, the Spurs got there first the year after. But I think Reggie's probably just in that tier below those guys, uh, Barkley, Malone, and Ewing. So, you know, tough, tough break. And, you know, the best <laughs> chance they might have had was 98. But then also, a few years later, they, they had a pretty decent chance before the uh, the Malice in the Palace as well. That's great. With, um, you know, Artest being such a great player at that time and the rest of the guys on that team complementing each other really well. He, If he was playing now, I think it would be really fascinating because he was such a, a great three-point shooter in a time where it wasn't common. And, um, you know, obviously leading the league in three-pointers made until Ray Allen broke that record. And such a bizarre body frame. And I feel like he would be perfect in this this day and age, wouldn't you think? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, he, he, would, be, he would be so sought after because... With that size that he had, was he like six seven? Um, mm. You know, he he could switch positions. You could play him in small lineups. You could still play him in big lineups. He 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 has ex- everything you want from a wing right now. So yeah, he yeah. he would thrive right now. He's definitely someone who came along uh, too early, as you, as pe- people like to say. Um, yeah, despite having a lot of success when he came. So and he's got that weird body shape as well, where <laughs> I think. Back then, it probably was a really big knock on him that he didn't have a big body to kind of go right. up against the, the tougher players. But now, I think with the less physical play, it would it would get by a bit easier. So we we looked at Carl uh, Malone winning the 97 MVP. We had Brian Russell there too talking trash about MJ while he was retired. I thought that was a just a... Another mistake, obviously, considering what went on to happen. And and I noticed that you called him Byron Russell. I always thought it was Byron Russell up until the last couple of weeks. Yeah. And it's it's almost (laughs) like the like the effect of being known for getting shot over has caused people to forget his name or confuse him with Byron Scott, but tough break for for Brian there. That spelling, man. It's not how I spell Brian. Yeah, exactly. It's got the Y and it's got the O. So he's he's just messing with convention there. But um, yeah, I mean, can you see the whole Malone MVP thing? Like we know Malone was a, a great player. Jordan even said in the talking head, like he was deserving, but MJ believed it was his championship to win. Do you think that that is an approach that um, we see from the best players even today? 
Uh, in terms of like the slate, like just that, yeah. that kind of motivation. Like I, I know obviously back then it happened again with like Hakeem when David Robinson won the MVP. That's and right. there's been probably, you know, LeBron may have had a similar reaction when Derek Rose won it. Yeah. Uh, do you, it almost seems like a time-honored tradition of like smashing out the opponent that, that took your award. Yeah, yeah. That's actually a great, great way to put it. I didn't actually really make the connection about the, the symmetry. But yeah, I mean, things get old, right? Uh, narratives get stale. People that decide these things, the media and other voters, they're... If, if there's a compelling case that's new, Malone, Derek Rose, whatever, that's exciting, um, you know, that's what happens. And, and I mean, Carl Malone's case, I mean, Carl Malone, you know, I, I, th- I don't know if he, he comes across that great overall in the last dance. Like, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know how well people received the shots of him going on the bus to congratulate Michael after mm. the win, which, you know, they're, they're good friends, personal friends, so you understand it, but... Like the whole competitiveness with that, like you, you contrast that with Carmelo's stats and his resume as the second leading scorer, a guy who literally averaged twenty five a game for his career, mm. and absolutely was a worthy choice if you look at the numbers uh, when he wins the MVP over Jordan. But it's the kind of thing that's like you really like. The like Durant's talked about this from time to time when it's like with uh, All NBA, it's like uh, even if someone quote unquote had a better season you kind of defer to, you should be deferring to who you still think is better. Or at least that's how a lot of people are approaching. Yeah. But it's kind of interesting to see this repeated with with Rose, come to think of it. Yeah. The MVP, like, conversation is, it's a debate that happens every year because people don't know how to define value as far as Mm -hmm. most valuable. Is it the best guy on the best team? Is it the guy that makes the biggest difference to his team? Or is it just the best player? Because I guess if you... If you just gave it to the best player in the league, then Michael would probably have, you know, 10 MVPs mm-hmm. instead of five, which is still right. like a still way more than MVPs than like anyone else that I can remember. Like, you know, Kobe got one or two. LeBron has two or three. It's um, it's not always, yeah, the best player in the league that gets it. But yeah, you know that that's going to force Jordan to come out firing. He doesn't need an excuse, as we said. But that's a, a good kind of segue into the uh, what has been known as the flu game. I'm not sure if they'll ever officially change the name, even though we know right. now that it was the food poisoning game. But as a basketball you know, fan of, of, of the history and everything, was there anything in this story that was new to you? Uh, so I actually knew it was you know, vaguely actually something he ate, or that was the story we've been told mm-hmm. anyway. And I think generally with The Last Dance, not a whole lot of it was super eye-opening in terms of revelations. And Mm -hmm. I guess apart from some comments Michael makes in episode 10, which I'm sure we'll get to. But the whole whole way this was told to us about the the pizza with five guys showing up as if they, (laughs) they, they somehow knew they were delivering the pizza to Michael Jordan, which just completely blows my mind because how does one order a pizza and and somehow explained to the pizza the pizza place that it's for Michael Jordan. Like the, he yeah. he already had he already had what five rings. He was already the most famous athlete in the world. He had all that security. They they knew what they were doing. How did they let the pizza place know they were making his pizza? I, I'm just so confused. By this. <laughs> Do you believe the story? Because it, it, if you come at it from that angle, it almost seems like they corroborated to yeah. you know to come up with an alibi as to <laughs> what might have happened. 
Right. Well, I thought it was a little telling where Michael's like, I was the only one who ate the pizza. I ate the whole thing. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm more of, I'm, I'm always more on the side of uh, uh, Jordan, you know, the gambling. I take that as far as I can. I take, you know, this, this I think, <laughs> I think he was hung over. You know, he didn't usually get hung over, so I've been told. But, uh, yes, I, I think it was a little more complicated than we, than we've been told but it's presented really well and as you said they had this story down they had corroborated this with each yeah. other there's a few things on this that i want to say like you, you can probably look at it in terms of okay maybe it was a well-known fact that the bulls stay at that hotel when they're in utah that's possible um who's ordering a pizza at 3 a.m you know maybe they were just assuming or or betting Mm -hmm. with each other and they wanted to see if it was true i I agree like the security guards definitely wouldn't have let that out that it was for michael because you'd become a target like i i always thought it was sushi or something like something where sure you know we know utah's like landlocked and that was kind of the rumor for a long time that he ate some food that was like maybe from the coast or something but we know jalen rose our dude has always said it was a hangover game that's kind of what you seem to be alluding to. But I think based on the stories we've heard here, including his mum talking about it, unless he's asked his mum to lie, we know that he was vomiting in the early hours of the morning and throwing up and feeling rotten, which doesn't quite hit me as like he's hungover. So I think sure. maybe yeah. uh, it's fast. a combination. Yeah, and, and I think it's a combination of maybe he did go a little hard and he ate some bad food because, you know, we know these stories. We've heard even in this episode, MJ talk about drinking some beers before training or whatever it was. I'm sure he had other games where he was playing hungover. Like he had to, he was the kind of guy that, you know, he went to Atlantic city in the playoffs and I'm sure that there was some adult beverages. So to think that a hangover could make him look this way, like, he looked right. like he could barely sure. function. So, yeah. And the whole, like, the I listened to the director talking to Jalen and Jacoby on their show and something they cut out. I don't know why they cut this out because it's amazing. Jordan spat on the pizza so that his uh, bodyguards and whoever and Tim Grover couldn't eat any of it because they had ordered their dinner without him earlier. And that was his way of saying, this is mine. Everyone else... Wow. Don't even think about touching it. So it's exactly something he would do. That's very in character. Yeah. It's disgusting as well. <laughs> um, I have a, a question here from my brother, Dan, who says, I love how Jordan's spite spitting on the pizza because the others had eaten without him led to his almost undoing, which ultimately added more fuel to his legacy. Has there been a public figure before or since whose spite seems to be a superpower? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Do you have someone that comes to mind? Uh, I mean, there's definitely guys who are out to prove people wrong. I think that's a pretty common motivation. I should have thought about this beforehand, but I don't know, like people like Russell Crowe, someone like someone who's like that kind of strikes me as someone who would go out of their way to, to prove someone wrong. Um, I guess as, as far as like outside of sports. Yeah, outside of sports, I was just thinking of people like like Drake or Kanye, people that have yeah. brought pettiness into the way they construct the narratives around their careers. But 
sports wise i'm not sure yeah it's 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 almost unrivaled i think in sport so getting back to the the flu game the achievement of of this stat line to me even knowing the story it still blows me away like 44 minutes that is in itself amazing even for just a normal game like if you're feeling healthy and well and you play 44 minutes in the finals that's crazy and to do that and score 38 points like it's hard to imagine a greater degree of difficulty right oh yeah it's it, it's insane you know just that that's another thing that i thought was a little eye-opening i almost wish they would have highlighted this a little bit more especially for the younger viewers because like i was saying the last dance not a whole lot of brand new stuff in there mm. but it seems to be getting a very warm reception especially with people that aren't super familiar with every little moment of this or only know the highlights or the wikipedia whatever right but seeing these 82 to 80 games where the best player in the world is playing damn near the whole game like it's just such a different brand of basketball and that's always what Mm. it's kind of cool to revisit because like you watch the highlights and it's like like everyone's kind of like the best players still kind of move and you like like the best players do now like i was watching scotty in these highlights and it's like yeah i could see scotty being a beast right now he looks very familiar as a you know a switchable wing with a good shot right but then you just look at like the way the game is actually played in terms of the plays they run and how long they play the short rotations all that just, that was, i thought that was really cool hmm. yeah and i think it's it kind of blows me away that they couldn't rely on anyone else to pick up some of those minutes like maybe they're just so used to relying on michael to to play a heavy rotation of minutes like it seems like there was other guys they could have gone to, but I guess his um, his determination won through, and and it, it's almost like Jerry Sloan said, like, was he sick? I didn't realize. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's uh, I don't know. Like, Jerry seems to have a really dry sense of humor, but it's um, yeah. It sometimes it makes me wonder about the scouting reports between this and something that we'll talk about later in '98. Yeah, I mean, I mean. Like like with like with Pippin's back, right? Like and, yeah, and Jordan, it's like, do you guys not know all this intel? Or like it it, it, just, <laughs> it just it just it feels so foreign to us, right? Like mm. like now if if uh, uh, LeBron has is tweaking, he's putting heat on his back before the game. The whole world knows that. Like there's no secrets mm. with that kind of stuff, right? But it's like uh, Jordan, he may he may have may have eaten something. We're not really sure, you know. It's like there's no woge. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you even think about like when the air conditioning didn't work in right in uh, San Antonio that time and the effect it had on LeBron like these kinds of things can uh, impact people's ability to play. So I feel like if they were to go back in time they might say let's run the ball, like let's play fast, let's wear them out, let's try and like get the score up to like 100 to 110, like that kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean I'm I'm still blown away by that game. And I think that it's the type of game where maybe more than any other, it's hard to imagine any other athlete in the NBA doing something like that. Like it's easy to deify MJ as this, you know, so far and above every other player, but it's things like this that make you think like who else could do it? Yeah. Right. And as you were saying, like, especially with the way those bulls were operating, Everyone else is a bit player, and if MJ can't accomplish his Herculean task, well, they're just not going to win. Like <laughs> mm. that—that was—that was their only plan. That was Plan A, B, C, and C. You know, that was, that was it. Yeah. 
and uh, no other teams really tried to run that way like like we get a lot of jazz in these episodes right the jazz are very much a well-oiled machine running a heavy dose of of pick and roll right stockton to malone malone's gonna be a beast stockton's gonna set it up no matter what like like just so so much different right and like i actually kind of wish we got more jerry sloan right because he he's i feel like he's kind of like forgotten about by younger people now but he he was quite a personality when it terms to comes to head coaches um but yeah jordan man uh the flu game probably is, is what it's is it his most famous game it, maybe he's not his most famous shot but in terms of like his overall yeah. performance like he had better games obviously but yeah it just seems to be his like most legendary performance yeah, I, even I, if it wasn't I, the best i think it's the one it's the one that has the most like myth around it and like awe and wonder around it there's definitely games where either he scored more points or he had a, a better highlight or he you know had a hit a game winner or whatever it is but yeah i think it's it's the one that people will point to to show the difference between him and others uh there was a lot of malone but they didn't show him choking in the in the 97 finals with his missed free throws that became right. such a, a big thing in i guess the story of this series with scotty pippen telling him before the game mailman doesn't deliver on sundays and they lost that game on a sunday one of the great right. trash talking lines ever and there's a few scotty moments that didn't get much shine throughout this series one of them you're probably pleased about like the dunk on patrick ewing i thought they really glossed over that i kind of wanted like some interviews about it because I, I i feel like that's such a uh, like statement dunk like it's one of the greatest dunks of all time and they just kind of showed it they didn't ask him about it they didn't ask spike lee about it they didn't ask right. patrick about it i thought it was fine you know you had to keep it moving you know yeah keep it moving. Doing to see stuff like that <laughs> and then to to not show like his greatest trash talk line against malone i was like yeah, it really is a, an MJ doc with people giving some context to um, <laughs> what makes Michael great. And the other the other part of that is like, I also don't understand why they couldn't really heavily rely on Scotty. I'm not sure what his stat line was in that flu game, but you would think in a normal, you know, in normal right. circumstances when someone's not feeling it, you can rely on your second player to step up. Like if if it was say you know LeBron and Kevin Love's Cavs team and LeBron had the flu, you'd be like, okay, this is going to be Kevin Love yeah. taking thirty shots and yeah, something like that. But yeah, I guess it's I don't know if it's where Scotty was in his career or the dynamic that they developed up to that point. What do you yeah. think? It seemed he seemed to be kind of already cresting in terms of the the quality of his play. Like he 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 didn't have like a. He didn't age super well, right? Like once he leaves after the season, mm. not super memorable in Portland, right? Like yeah, he got he finally got paid, but like yeah. I, I get I, and like obviously with, with his 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 injuries to come, but like I think he was just kind of worn down. But yeah, I mean th- I had the same thought. It's like why can't we up Scotty's usage for one game? He's used to playing less. You'd think he'd have it in him to just shoulder a little more offensive load this one mm. time. Like it it, it is it is strange. Yeah, and that's a bit of a running theme we'll get to in the 98 series as well. Uh, So this brings us to a bit of a Steve Kerr moment where we get some background with him, which, you know, as soon as they cut to a talking head with Steve Kerr, 
I started getting emotional because I knew that what they were about to talk about and I knew the story with his dad, which is probably news to a lot of people that um, haven't been following him over his career. But yeah, they told that so well. And Steve Kerr, he's kind of the portrayed as like the fifth starter here. He was really not that like he, he was on the court in crunch time a lot of the a lot of the time right. ron harper was sitting on the bench but because of his like presence as like the warriors coach and and all of that i think they've made him to be a bigger part of this team but his personality is certainly one of the the more interesting ones and what did you think of this kind of moment and leading up to the the 97 like game winner yeah, no, so I thought that was excellent, obviously. I also knew the story, but despite Steve Kerr's large presence in the NBA today, and even mm. a little before this when he was on TV, like I, it's probably not super well-known because it just doesn't, it's something that doesn't come up, right? Uh, but having this come into the doc, and, I, and we already had been introduced to Steve Kerr in the doc through the, uh, the punch, fight. Yeah, yeah. the fight with Michael. So following this up, it, I think it was a great way to like, weave in the big shot he finally hits and Michael trusting him, right? But it also mm-hmm. helps explain, I think, the Steve Kerr a lot of people know in terms of being a really uh, thoughtful, well-spoken guy on a lot of a lot of issues outside of basketball. So, yeah, I thought that was excellent. But yeah. I, I did have the same thought, too. Like, you look at some of the graphics and, and promotional materials for The Last <laughs> Dance, and it's like, Scotty, Rodman, uh, 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 Michael. Oh, look, there's Steve Kerr on the, on, uh, right next to him. What? Really? Yeah. Like, no respect for Horace Grant, like, Harper, nobody. Hey, man, Luke Longley, our guy, like, here we are over in Australia just waiting for any kind of moment for Luke Longley to show up. Yeah, he, uh, um, he, did he have have a talking head moment in the doc? No, they didn't interview him. I think it was probably a bit hard to coordinate with him being over here, so didn't get there. But I I also just felt like there's got to be some backstage like locker room moment with him like we saw yeah. bill wennington and we saw mm-hmm. you know scotty burrell and and these different moments people had whether it was at training or on the plane or whatever we never got that with luke so that was a, a little sad it, it makes me think that luke kind of kept his distance from mj <laughs> right which you understand i guess why they didn't want that portrayed because at the end of the day this doc is still a geography with michael's uh, creative input and control mm. and all that. So anything like it's kind of funny. Like remember Kerr when, we, when they talk about the fight, it's like, yeah, you know, sometimes Michael, we just uh, we just didn't. Some of the teammates, we you know, we just didn't get along. And it's like, man, if you asked him that 25 years ago, there would have been a lot more cursing and a lot more declarative statements in terms of their yeah. dislike of Michael. You know, but like we just we were just weren't going to get that. So maybe Longley was in fact just a casualty. I don't know, but. Yeah. I mean, they had, they had they had interviews with Kraus from back in the day. They had David Stern stuff, you know, like uh, you you would have thought they would have had something they could have used, but I don't know. You know they have to, yeah, yeah. I mean, we got down. we got Will Perdue calling him an a hole and stuff like this, so yep. they snuck it in there, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I totally agree. Like Steve Kerr, um, so well-spoken. I've always been a big fan of his even before he was on ESPN just from, you know, being the shooter, the the token three-point shooter on the Bulls that every every great team back then had like one guy that could hit threes basically. And 
as as someone I, I think i mentioned this on our last episode like i loved using him on nba live 97 and that was <laughs> where my love for him started and for him to go on to have like great success in, in san antonio in the same kind of role and then obviously with the warriors i'm really glad he's still around but like the the shot in 97 is uh a really great kind of um not redemption because he wasn't really having to redeem himself from somewhere, but it was kind of like uh, probably legitimizing Steve Kerr as as an NBA player who could come through because I guess he'd had some some rough moments in the series leading up to that, and he was on those Cavaliers teams that couldn't get past Michael, and he probably couldn't crack the starting lineup on a, a bunch of teams that he played for, but you know he'll go down as one of those role players like. I guess Patty Mills with the Spurs and sure. Uh, a good I'm gonna I'm just gonna keep throwing out Australian <laughs> players, but Della Della Dover on that Dover. on that on that Cavs team that won the championship, like they weren't gonna crack the starting lineup, but they had really important roles on those teams to to kind of get the dirty work done, whether it was like hitting a big shot or making a big defensive play. Um, right. And I always loved what Steve had to say in the the ceremony like the parade afterwards i had to bail michael out again like great line that one i mean let's not forget steve kerr has the highest career three-point shooting mm. average of all players 40 over 45 percent um yeah obviously they didn't shoot a lot of threes back then no one would think he was the best three-point shooter ever but uh you know he he, he, he was good at that one skill and as you said that was a skill that was a lot rarer back then and not as uh, focused on so yeah, man. Shout out Steve Kerr. Yeah, I think it was think, a 50... Are there, any, are, are there any other Australian players that we can compare him to? <laughs> um, let's see. I was going to say Joe Ingles, but he's. I think Joe yeah. Ingles is a better player. <laughs> uh, oh, Andrew Gaze. Steve Kerr and there Ben Simmons, very similar. Very similar. Yeah, no. Nah. Andrew Gaze was actually, I think, one of our first players to, to move into the NBA, and he didn't have much success, but he is pretty widely regarded as like our greatest NBA, uh, not not our greatest NBA player, but our greatest Australian basketball player ever. His his prime was just like, it didn't quite line up with the international movement. Gotcha. Um, all right. So we get to uh, move into the 98 season again, and we get a, a kind of window into Michael's relationship with the bodyguards, particularly Gus, who had become like a father figure to him. And um, I thought it was quite revealing, his wife saying that Michael used to call Gus on the phone crying in the middle of the night. Like that was, um, that really struck me. What did you think of that whole sequence? Yeah, uh, so I guess that was something I didn't really know about. Um, and just kind of hammered home the fact that into his early 30s, Michael still really sought at, sought a like father figure, a mentor figure mm. for him. And it was just, I'm not sure if we ever understood why that was, why Michael felt the need to have that kind of presence in his life. Because, you know, the converse, uh, right after this moment, we finally get to see his kids for the first time, right? Like, he didn't mm. seem to uh, treat being a father the same way he seemed to value that role for himself yeah you know it was just kind of a weird contrast to me but the moments with the gut bodyguard himself gus that 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 was great and i i even beforehand i like those moments where we saw him uh 
like playing like the quarter game on the wall with the mm-hmm. bodyguards just showing how competitive he was in mundane random tasks you know we got that later with these when he was yeah. shooting at a shot <laughs> practice with the team yeah i think his small circle of of friends probably is a reason that he had such a uh, a role for his father like to keep him grounded to keep him uh, i guess feeling like he's a, a normal person like that's something you can't get from anyone else and you know we saw so many times the people that he was hanging out with were his bodyguards we didn't see scotty and him like socializing that often we know that people like dennis wouldn't hang out with him or even talk to him off the floor and we know that i guess people like Butchler and uh steve kerr and in earlier seasons like paxton and mm-hmm. and those guys like they would Grant, all hang out together sure. the, yeah. yeah the role players were, would all hang out and then michael would kind of be separate and i guess that's i don't know if that's to create some distance to allow himself to kind of be more of an authority figure as you know the way that he would treat them the way that he would kind of demand the best from them maybe it required him not connecting with them in that same way so i think having a father figure like gus would have been important for that reason yeah it was a a touching moment for sure i'm glad i'm glad they 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 fit that in because it it did did tie off some ends you know obviously with the stuff with his dad earlier on in in the series yeah for sure and quite a humanizing thing to see that he would be there for that family during cancer treatment and all that kind of thing. And like giving the game ball to Gus after game seven as well. Like that was clearly a really special thing to him to kind of um, get that recognition at such a big moment. And that takes us into episode 10 where uh, we have the, the jazz back again for the 98 series. They're even better than they were before. And they kind of rolled through the playoffs, the Western Conference, quite easily. I guess it was like a, a Lakers team that wasn't quite ready with um, Kobe still probably coming off the bench at that point. It was a Spurs team that wasn't quite ready with Duncan in his first season. And Jazz just knew what they were doing. It's a tried and true system. The pick and yeah. roll. Everyone knew their place. Malone, crazy athlete. Like we saw already how great of a scorer he was but when you look at his body shape it's almost like pre-lebron like Mm -hmm. that's where i see lebron james taking cues from like the the type of of build that carl malone had is really what we see with lebron as someone that's able to play with power and finesse inside the three-point line do you see some parallels between those two yeah, no, that's that's actually a, that's a good point, you know, and I mean, who would be Carl Malone's comps, like, in terms of that kind of thing? I'm trying to think, like, I guess Hakeem, who, who you know, he's is a contemporary yeah. of his, but, like, he's he was so much bigger than Barkley, right? Yeah. And, yeah. N- but not, not, not quite as big as, like, a Ewing, so, it, it, yeah, yeah, Carl, man, I'm trying to think, like, imagine today, like, imagine Carl Malone with, like, like, with range. You know, yeah, <laughs> he was already he was already so well rounded for his time, and I feel like you mm. know, yeah, I, I guess LeBron is kind of the extension of that. That's funny. Yeah, it's like LeBron is the more explosive and athletic and um, agile version of of right. Malone in, in some and ways. He also passes like Stockton. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> so 
to see the Jazz kind of get off on the front foot with this one, they won the first game in overtime. The Bulls, you know, there was kind of questions about them coming into this series a bit hobbled after a seven-game series while Utah had a bit more time to rest. The Bulls won game two, and then it kind of comes out with this crazy performance where they're held to 54. Like, the Bulls just destroy them. I had forgotten this or I didn't realize this part of the series, but it's kind of mind-blowing, isn't it? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I don't know if I even knew that that detail, to be honest, because it, it's just so so out there. Even even then, in a, in a time where offense is way down and there's this is less possessions and a slower pace of play, the f- it, it, it's kind of confounding, right? Like, I mean, last year, the Warriors had a 50-point quarter, you know? Mm. it's We're so far <laughs> removed from that. But, like, no matter how – the best defensive team holding someone in the 50s, it's it just kind of mind-blowing, man. Like – and then I guess you can kind of compare it and think about it. Like Rodman, Scotty, and Michael, when they were on on the defensive end, they probably had that in them a little mm. more than we think. It just was. It is really hard to execute to that level. But yeah, I mean that that's just that's an embarrassing thing that had to happen in the playoffs. Yeah, like, and it's such a weird outlier in the series where <clears throat> every other game was fairly competitive and yeah. pretty close. Like the Jazz won a couple and. Bulls one another and and it was like what happened in that game three <laughs> it's right. almost like it, it needs its own deep dive in itself like did, were they just off I don't know yeah I, f- I feel like that's one of those things where if they were playing in like a more modern offense like Stockton probably shoot tries to shoot more when mm. things aren't going their yeah. way Malone maybe tries to force his will on the game a little bit more and not rely on being set up like it's kind of like just a perfect storm but yeah I would. I actually wouldn't have minded if we got more time with that because of how unique it was. Like they kind of glossed over it. Like was it David Aldridge? Like it was a beatdown historically. Blah blah blah. Yeah. And then we're, we're basically done with it already. Like there was no talk about Carmelo not coming through, as you said before. Like we just kind of moved right on. Yeah, it makes you think. Like was it just that they went to Malone and he just couldn't get it, or was it just the team couldn't buy a bucket? I might have to jump on YouTube and like find yeah. some highlights or something f- to figure out what happened because that's kind of an unanswered question. Uh, it pulls us through into the whole Rodman WCW Nitro appearance, which is uh, another just bizarre thing to come from Dennis during this season. They glossed over completely, I think, the whole incident the year prior where he kicked a photographer in the groin and got suspended. But I guess it didn't have anything to do with Michael. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a weird interstitial, right? Because we already had, like, the Robin-centric episode in, what, episode three, mm-hmm. I think it was, whenever, or, yeah. a few weeks back. And I, I kind of liked seeing, like, the reporters talk on the Phil, and he's like, uh, Dennis isn't here. No, this is not excused. No, I don't know where he is. Like, he's just so curt about it. Like, Yeah. Uh, I think he was he, rehearsed though because to bring Carmen Electra back in, of course, too, which uh, yeah. <laughs> seemed to be a big hit on social media whenever she was on. But oh, yeah. um, I mean, yeah, you know, they, they because because this episode ten kind of ends quickly. Like, there's no aftermath with this. We get some text: mm. Kukoc traded, Rodman released, Pippen traded, Jordan retired. Right? Like, we we don't really get it hammered home that Rodman is on the cusp of being out of the league already. You know, yeah. Like when when he signs with L.A., it's like for like what a million bucks or something, if that. Like he, he signed for basically pennies. 
Yeah, his his value definitely dropped outside of this team. I think he had like a kind of a failed attempt to play in LA and then he went to Dallas and didn't really do anything there. I don't think he even finished the season. And he was already 37 or 38, I think, at this point. Like He was a couple of years older than Michael. Right. So it's also kind of forgotten that he, in this series, was not the Rodman that we'd seen throughout the previous uh, seasons of the documentary. His rebounds were, I think they were still pretty high in the regular season, but in the finals... He struggled a bit, but so it was impressive to see him come out of that uh, wrestling appearance and and still play to a, a fairly decent level. Yeah, I was just looking it up. So his last season with the Bulls, he was 36, and in the regular season, he led the league in rebounds at 15 a game still. But yeah. he was still, in a sense, so diminished from the peak of what he could accomplish as a defensive menace. It's kind of wild to think about. But he, he was a 25-year-old rookie, to your point. Like he, he got a late yeah. start. Yeah, definitely. And I think it was, again, like having to play with Phil Jackson and thriving in that environment is what kind of made him reach that second like resurgence, that potential that he had. And he wasn't able to get that kind of leadership with other coaches after this. Apparently, Phil Jackson lied about that whole thing because they did know that he wasn't going to be there apparently dennis's agent said that they'd cleared it with jerry kraus and phil Mm -hmm. jackson they knew he was going to uh the show the taping i think it was in detroit but they had to kind of act like they disapproved (laughs) because if they didn't let him go they knew that he would be kind of sulking and yeah not playing to his best of, of his mental ability Right, yeah. I mean, so that was an off day where they had they had a scheduled practice, right? He missed a scheduled yeah. practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that that's the kind of thing about Rodman, which I think a lot of people appreciated with this doc, just seeing it more, is he truly was a one of one in terms of just a personality. And obviously, we know a lot more in terms of he's had some substance abuse issues and that um, you know has had struggles, but and you know some some unsavory allegations as well, but. Um, the fact that Phil was able to kind of apply his Zen to Dennis and give him the rope when it was appropriate to relock mm. him back in. Like there's always that old adage of like, get your big man going early. So he's engaged in the game and he actively rebounds and protects the rim for you. Right. But Dennis, you had to like take that to the extreme with his personal life and stuff. It, it It's pretty interesting. But as people have been saying, he was not super like, finally covered at the time with these antics right there was just not a lot of tolerance for this kind of thing at least in the mainstream <laughs> there was a quote from bob costas in that game six that we'll get to we saw the footage of him and malone kind of tussling on the floor i think it was like four mm-hmm. five times that they repeatedly locked yeah. arms and, and tripped over each other and costas on nbc said he and Carl malone regrettably are scheduled to wrestle in one of those bogus events next month, which uh, was apparently the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view that was coming up. Why Malone wants to lower himself to that is anyone's guess, and Rodman apparently wants to start wrestling now. So Bob Costas, no fan of uh, WCW, obviously. (laughs) That's funny. I think I missed that part. Uh, Yeah, yeah, after that tussle, was there no... They didn't even call a foul on that, right? No technical or anything? 
remember. They called it off. I think they called an off the ball foul, and that's why they kept showing the replay. And it was new footage actually, where uh, Rodman taps Malone on the bum, and then he returns the favor, and and Dennis kind of reacts in like a really almost like flirtatious way, which is pretty funny. I think they had a, a decent friendship those two, despite the the battles, because. Yeah, they did go on to wrestle each other literally in a pay-per-view. And there's some <laughs> great footage of, of Carl all like greased up and doing scoop slam after scoop slam against uh, Hulk Hogan and and um, and Rodman with uh, Diamond Dallas Page in his corner. Yeah. I mean, shit, looking at the, the numbers, Malone in the regular season where he wins MVP was 27-10. and 10. With yeah, like it's impressive, oh, with a block as well, like, and I assume yeah. the, super efficient, yeah, over fifty percent, <laughs> and he, and he was uh he was no spring chicken either. He was thirty four. Yeah, you know? yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, How old was Mike? Michael was what thirty thirty one in this too. Like he wasn't young either. Yeah, it's hard to think of a player now averaging twenty seven and ten on that kind of efficiency i don't know if giannis has gotten close to that has he yeah i mean well giannis is super efficient i'm thinking like the comp now is anthony davis i'd say yeah but we have to remember carl malone's doing this with just way less possessions in the game um Mm. just at a lower pace the score the total score is just lower so yeah it's almost more impressive to accomplish it back then but i mean look he's taking a lot of shots so much shots of his team you know uh, his team's overall shots but yeah i think yeah now it'd be Giannis and and uh yeah Gian- the Giannis cop is really shack if you look at like his shot chart and stuff but yeah, yeah i sure. guess anthony davis without the jumper cool so we'll move on from dennis to scotty who we saw in game six he's playing hurt he's playing kind of battered throughout this series but especially in game six he has a dunk on the very first play and he comes down and he talked about it after the game, he felt some spasms instantly and just looking at his face and it was obvious to everyone that he was hurt. Apparently everyone apart from Jerry Sloan. <laughs> it's again, ridiculous. Who didn't seem to take advantage of it at all. Uh, it was great footage of, of seeing Scotty say, I was a decoy the whole time. And he hit some big shots. He had some nice little jump hooks a couple mm-hmm. times, some mid-range kind of floaters and stuff. So he wasn't just completely a decoy, but having him out there, I guess, pulled away, you know, one of, one of the better defenders from the Jazz team. Do you feel like this was somewhat of a redemption for Dennis playing hurt when, you know, obviously there'd been questions in his biggest moments of, of whether he was soft or whether he was tough. And there was obviously the migraine game and there was the you know sitting down against the Knicks so for me I think that's kind of what they did in this documentary whether it was intentional or not it was kind of saying like Scotty kind of got one in the end yeah I I totally agree I think that that was probably the intent of Jason too with the directing is just Scotty in the end grinded it out for the Bulls you know that was uh he was on the cusp of getting paid in a sense he is risking something when by playing when he's clearly injured, but he mm. did it for the team and it worked better than probably anyone expected. Um, so yeah, I think he, he gets a lot of points for that and uh, more than anything, it probably makes up for his, as you said, w- uh, unwillingness to come into the game 
you know, from was that uh, two seasons ago beforehand. So yeah, 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 ninety four. I think it might have right. been. Yeah, was that that was 95? that was during the first uh, Jordanless season, right? When he was playing baseball, yeah. right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, and I, in general, I li- I just really appreciate Scottie Pippen as a talking head, and we get this on ESPN too now, just because he has such like a like a gravelly voice, you know, like he sounds yeah. really good if you have good uh like a good subwoofer, <laughs> like it really, yeah. <laughs> it's really deep bass. Yeah, he's great. He makes everybody's speakers shake. I'm sure. But we had a question from uh, another usual co-host of this podcast, Brendan White. He says, is Scotty Pippen the ultimate Robin to your team's Batman? And I, I keep saying on this podcast and others that I feel like it's almost insulting to call him Robin because Batman and Robin, like there's such a huge gap sure. between those two Night characters. <laughs> it, it, it's almost like Batman and Superman. So, I mean, as, as far as is Scotty Pippen the number one second option, can you think of anyone else that would would take that from him? Yeah, so the only thing that gives me pause would be well, you know, he's really close because if we think about the the Jordan baseball season, the Bulls that year win was it one less game, is it? Two Something two like less that. games in the year F- before? 50, like, it was 50 plus, yeah. Right. And Scott is able to rise to the occasion and be the guy, but he's still kind of he still kind of floated in, you know. He 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 wasn't like Iverson or Westbrook out there would really rock in the uh, demand the rock during that season. Yeah. So he he was he always is a really complimentary guy in how he plays. And as we said before, even when Jordan is sick with food poisoning or whatever the hell it is, you know, Scotty doesn't necessarily step up and take fifteen more shots. So. Mm. And you see that in his stats. You know, I mean, what's his career average? Like 16 or something? It's not as high as you'd think, despite yeah. how the reverence we have for him. So, but he, he also is such a good compliment as a two way guy. And yeah. I think, especially now, like we know he would have a, a dagger uh, shot, I'm sure. So I think there's like flashier number two guys, but he's such a, so good as a complimentary player that he, he's obviously right there at the top. Hmm. Yeah, I think he developed a jump shot as his career went on as someone that came into the league without much right. happening as far as offensive weapons. And in his years, especially in Portland and Houston, I think he showed that range a bit more despite being like less able, less agile. I think to have Pippen alongside Jordan for the duration of those that dynasty, like that is where he comes in as like the ultimate assistant to, to what Michael was doing. We, we might've seen better second players, whether it's like maybe Dwayne Wade with LeBron right. for a couple of those seasons or, uh, you know, Magic and Kareem played together. Right. Larry Robinson had some, Duncan. Yeah. Robinson and Duncan, like you've, you've got a lot of great duos over the years, but to have someone alongside you the whole time that, makes Michael's job a lot easier. Michael doesn't have to guard the best player on the other team. You can send Scotty in to do that. Uh, Scotty, you can count on him to do whatever he needs to do to compliment Jordan, whether it's on offense, defense, as a right. kind of point, as a basically a point guard, like a point forward on that team, able to run the offense and lead the team in assists, which takes pressure off Michael as well to not have to be a playmaker. So, yeah, I mean, you you might have some arguments to make about ultimate Robin to Batman, but 
you're not going to find anyone that's like an obvious answer over him. Agreed. Okay, so game six is winding down. We get one of the great plays of, or I guess sequences of plays from an individual where Michael is taking jump shot after jump shot. He barely hits, like there's a couple of layups, but most of his uh, scoring in this game is off these turnaround jump shots, off these like, um, you know, he'll do like a, step back or a crossover he'll shake his defender and and hit a jump shot and he's missing a lot of shots too but he's using as little energy as possible and similar to that flu game it's one with a huge degree of difficulty where he doesn't have the help that he's been able to rely on from scotty kukoc isn't really feeling it this night or michael's not confident that he he can help in this instance (laughs) <laughs> so he's really bearing a huge burden and slowing the game down and keeping the score under like 90 points to, to get this done. So it's such a calculated performance from Michael. Mm-hmm. And the last sequence where he's pretty much the only guy on the Bulls to touch the ball for a couple of minutes. You know, he has this really um, great sequence where he's fouled and hits two shots and then he does a really quick layup and then steals the ball from Carl Malone at the end of the game. And I'm glad they showed a few different angles of that because it's such a great play where he smacks it out of yeah. his hands and is smart enough to really take a big gamble on that play because Hornacek was left completely wide open if Michael's attempt to steal the ball was a, was a failure. Right. What do you think re-watching that play that eventually ends with the, the push-off brian russell or the step back on brian russell and the yeah the, the game winner with a 5.2 well it's another it's another one of those little moments where again they kind of gloss over it for this angle but Carl malone just didn't quite get it done and it's something so simple as just getting his pocket picked like that by michael mm. you know it's like you gotta have your head on a swivel with that but uh you know it's, it's an amazing sequence and then um Michael finally getting his just desserts on Brian Russell's as well. Something he <laughs> was so happy to to finally do. Like it was he was was Russell the one he mentioned that he like he, he was on his list. Like he mentioned, yeah, okay, yeah. He yeah. said he was he made the list after he said like yeah, don't you come back to the league or whatever it was. Right. Yes, that's right. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, that, that was a great sequence and uh, I think really re- really engaging too. Uh, for the doc in terms of like you have like amazing footage of that like really up close and stuff mm. yeah there's a, a great image that i used to actually have on my bedroom wall where it's like the balls in the air he's holding the goose neck pose after that last jumper and you can just see every fan in the crowd behind the backboard just gasping and there's mm-hmm. like one bulls fan that's like celebrating already it's amazing I used to love just looking at the different faces on that and they did a, a cool job of like zooming in on that yeah, in the documentary so too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that shot, like it's... Craig Elo, like you can say what you will about that, but I think the last shot is his most in- enduring, yeah. I think. What do most you reckon? picturesque. Yeah. And we had a question from uh, my friend Thomas Marshall who says, was it a push? What do you think? Mm-hmm. Because they did a great job of setting it up where Michael was saying, you know, I knew how Brian was going to guard me. I knew that he was playing on his toes and I could get him, you know, off balance. Yeah. And it was basically Michael 
like getting ahead of the narrative that he pushed i think of course that's of course the way they presented it obviously um you know i saw some compelling uh commentary regarding the momentum of russell he was kind of already moving that direction and Mm -hmm. like oh was it costas who said it he was yeah he said he was guiding him to the like escorting him to a table like a waiter yeah (laughs) right that's right and yeah, I think there's probably a little umph behind it. Jordan probably, if he didn't have this in his repertoire by then already, thought of the, the Reggie push-off. Yeah, I, I'd have to imagine <laughs> he had that deep in his brain somewhere. He knew he could probably get away yeah. with this. Offensive fouls were very uncommon in this era in general, and especially for a last shot. like It'd have to be super egregious to have anything called. So, yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. It's not an obvious push or anything. That's pretty clear, but... Mm. Yeah, I, I think he, he got a little extra in there. He was Michael Jordan. He knew he could get away with it. Yeah, I think he definitely touched him. He definitely gave it a little push. But I would not I would be shocked if anyone called that as a foul. Even today, like mm-hmm. uh, yeah. at, the, at that point in the game, you kind of just let a little bit more go. And especially on the offensive end, like a, a little push like that, you're going to have to really do something pretty obvious and demonstrative to get called for an offensive foul at that point in a Absolutely. finals game as well. All right. So that was great. We got the six rings, kind of the the end to the last dance and, you know, the, the celebrations and then it comes through to the, to the question of, uh, you know, is this it? Is this the end? And everything leading up to this point had been kind of pointing towards Phil not coming back towards scotty wanting to sign a big deal and then we get i guess it's news it was news to me that uh, phil invited everyone to come back and and kind of burn something as a symbol of uh, letting the season go and letting the dynasty go including michael burning a poem that he'd written what did you think of this part yeah that i mean that's that's is that like the most Zen moment we have of Phil Jackson as a coach? Like it's, it's a very, it's very much a singular thing that only someone like Phil would really do. And yeah, I was not familiar with the story either. Um, It's kind of funny to hear that it wasn't like some kind of motivation tactic. It was at the end once the deed Mm -hmm. was done, you know, once it was time to rest, you know, it's a, but yeah, that was really cool. I mean, Phil, I've complicated feelings about Phil Jackson as a Knicks fan, obviously, but um, I, I I thought he was actually pretty well spoken in the stock, and it was kind of cool to see that moment too as a bookend. Yeah, he's someone that can be very abrasive sometimes and very like opinionated, and um, I mean, he, doesn't he, he really. Was, he was happy to uh, shake someone in the back once in a while with a comment or a, yeah, you know, with oh, his yeah. being careerist, or whatever. That, that's pretty clear. He he I don't think he really shies away from that at this point, you know. Um, but I mean right after this moment though is when we get the whole obvious out in the open comment from michael about how he actually wanted to come back and go for seven and yeah that was I, a, a kind of a revelation wasn't it yeah i mean that that that, that was that was kind of a, a mind-blowing thing i think twitter blew up when that happened no one really knew this it's right at the end of the doc and it's probably the most revealing piece of information that the doc has uh, shared that Jordan actually did want to come back. He never really talked about this. And then we find out that he had still never talked to Jerry Reis- Reinsdorf about this. Yeah. And then when we get Reinsdorf on the screen talking to Jason 
and he kind of just has a marbled mouth answer about why he had to let Kraus do the rebuild, and it's just not a satisfying explanation at all why the owner bowed down to his GM to end, willingly end a dynasty. Like, very strange. And yeah, the fact that Jordan thought he, most people would come back, we say Scotty would need some convincing. We, we know you'd have to pay Scotty big. But the fact that they wanted to try, it was pr- pretty interesting to me. Hmm. Yeah, I found that, yeah, really fascinating, as you said. And I actually don't think it would have been possible to bring them all back. Like, it's easy for Michael to say, mm-hmm. yeah, like, of course, like, we would have all come back for another year. I don't think that's true. Like, how many I mean, times have we seen people They were done with Rodman, teams? we know that. Yeah, like, Rodman wasn't going to stay. Like, so many times we've seen people leave championship teams because they got a good offer finally there's no way like was jordan gonna take a, a pay cut so that scotty could sign for a big contract that was probably the key jordan would have to not be paid at the top yeah so scotty to needed, needed like... top dollar he, 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 <laughs> you know it would have been so unfair yeah. to make scotty not get paid once again you know like hmm. yeah, yeah for sure and like jordan's coming off a 33 million dollar season how could he look scotty in the eye <laughs> really right. like it's it's hard to imagine. And, and, you know, you get all those role players. Like, I guess I, I could see a world where Steve Kerr is convinced to come back. Maybe Ron Harper's convinced to come back if Phil's there. But that kind of brings us into a question from our friend Logan Wilkinson, who says, could the Bulls have won a seventh ring? And I don't think that they could. I think it's easy to, to say... Uh, that they would have been the favorites, but there's a lot of kind of factors to look at here. If we want to break it down, you know, like we have the lockout season. Uh, Matt Tilby wanted us to talk about Dennis Rodman predicting or, or saying recently that the bulls would have gone 50 and zero if they played that year. That's ludicrous. That's ridiculous. <laughs> he must've been joking because that's just <laughs> insane. But I think, you know, they, they did a great job of showing after that 93 season, how worn out Michael was, how much mm-hmm. he was, you know ground down by the the you know the pressure of three straight championship seasons we've seen the warriors face this in recent years like the uh the heat couldn't stay together after four seasons maybe if they'd won more championships maybe they would have stayed together but things just have their time and i think after three a three-peat like it's going to be pretty hard to motivate yourself, especially with the lockout season. I think right. not knowing if the season is going to come back is a really tough thing for players. And that's what they're facing now to stay in shape for that, to stay ready mm-hmm. and then have to come back and cram a season into a short amount of time with still 50 games. It appears that it had a, a significant toll on the older teams in the league. We saw the jazz get knocked out of the playoffs we saw the Pacers get knocked out of the playoffs and it was these younger teams like the Spurs and the Knicks that were able to come through. So I guess to throw it over to you, do you think the Bulls would have been able to knock off your Knicks if they played? Uh, I mean, I think the, the key thing here is that Rodman was almost assuredly gone. Like they, they just weren't going to bring him back even if they brought everyone else back probably, right? And there really was no obvious free agent to sign to replace him. Mm. And and the Rodman role, the Horace Grant role, was super important to these Bulls runs. And mm. when they didn't have 
that role filled, they didn't actually win as much. And I think that kind of would have been the kryptonite, especially against Patrick Ewing um, or, or Tim Duncan and David Robinson. I, mean, geez, mm-hmm. I, I think the Spurs in particular would be incredibly scary. Like, at the end of the day, the Knicks still weren't like a super loaded team. They were they actually they're probably deeper with the ninety nine team, but um yeah, I think I think it just would have been a harder road. And it's not like they were waltz to the, 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 the sixth ring, you know, it was still tough then. So another year older, another try for what hundred game season if it wasn't a a lockout, you know, like it, as you, and as you said, uh this repeating these deep runs year after year after year is not sustainable at the end of the day. And that's before you factor in the economics. So, yeah, I would say no. But uh, the fact yeah. that they wanted to try is still what's so tantalizing all these years later. Yeah. It says a lot about Michael, the fact that he can't, like, let something go. <laughs> he's, he's, I remember, like, reading the newspaper the day after the game six, and it said his quote was, he was undecided about the next season. It's bittersweet. That was the word he used. And... When he when the lockout happened, that may have been what pushed it over the edge. But there's also like if you really want to get into it, he had this like injury in the off season where he cut his finger on a cigar cutter and it like severed a tendon. He couldn't use that hand for two months. So yeah, that would his have golf also, was all fucked up, right? Like Yeah. <laughs> it would have really ruined either training camp or the, the opening month of the NBA season, depending on when that happened. So yeah, it's it's. I think it's poetic that it ended there. I think that right. that's really that what we love too. about this. Yeah, it's what we love about this story is that you know he went out on top. It's part of his legacy that he went out as the the best player in the game. He went out as the Finals MVP, season MVP, and I think that's something that is admired. And it's one of the reasons that we hate to talk about the Wizards. <laughs> it's one of the reasons that we don't like acknowledging that he is human when he came back and wasn't quite the yeah. same way i had another question here from from tom marshall and it was how do we feel about this being the last dance and not a retrospective of his whole career like did you want to see some footage or some coverage for the wizards years yeah well i mean i would just like to hear more from michael because he's not someone who is very candid he just doesn't really talk about much he's pretty you know under the radar not to this degree but like Carl Malone Carl Malone after he retired kind of just faded away and has lived a relatively private Mm. life Michael you know the the whole thing with the Wizards deciding to come back having that you know he he puts up numbers that look good you know at first glance but those teams don't go anywhere and he's pretty old by that point having him talk about that and how, how about having him talk about deciding to own the Hornets and not really have any success with that, having a poor draft record and um, <laughs> yeah. going through a name change. Like, I, I there, there is still more to the story, right? And, you know, I guess because the, the framework of The Last Dance is around this never-before-seen-to-the-public yeah. footage around the season, it makes sense for this construct. But, yeah, th- there's, there's more to the story I'd like to hear about, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And... You know that there's like so much footage that they didn't use. I really hope they can find a way to clear, you know, releasing some of that. And yeah, like I, even just from the snippets we've heard of stuff that didn't make it in already, like within the time frame that it's been released, there's so much. Yeah, 
and I mean, it's, it, you just think about the narratives too with uh, this kind of new wave of young players coming into the league with Kobe coming into his own, Duncan, uh, Iverson, Gary Payton, yeah. like, and then, I mean, there, there's some obvious like like bookends too if you just want to tell more of the league story, right? Like Jordan, Kobe, there, there was more to that as Kobe mm. was building his legend and heck, <laughs> it would have been cool to like touch in on a, the Gary Payton, Carl Malone Lakers experiment too to kind of end the story we got from them in the last dance. Like there, there's so, there's so much more room, but uh, yeah, I I don't think we're gonna get much uh, about Jordan for a while. I think next is what I assume something with Kobe will happen sooner than later. But mm, yeah, LeBron obviously it's too early for LeBron, and there's only a few people that really have like modern players. It's hard because like there's less unknown with all the access and so much more footage yeah. widely available but i think the co the kobe prospects probably the next kind of topic to approach with this and i think we'll see that before we see anything more with jordan yeah that makes sense and like i was going to say there's like probably a key criticism of this documentary they've done an amazing job but it's very bulls centric and that seems like a dumb criticism except that when things come up that are related to other teams whether it's playing against Orlando in 95 and they pretty much barely mentioned Shaq and Penny at all. It was like all yeah. about Horace Grant and right. like the, the, the rivalry with Horace. I, I was expecting like interviews with Shaq. I thought he was going to have some great talking heads about what it was like to knock Jordan out of the playoffs. Man, but that's yeah. like, that's not about Jordan. It's about Shaq. So I guess they didn't do that. And then the same thing happening, uh, you know, with the... The, as you mentioned, like Kobe was just kind of coming up. It would have been great to hear more about Kobe talking about, you know, Jordan's influence on his game and that kind of thing, or Michael talking about Kobe himself. But like you said, that's probably the next doc. And it's a shame that, you know, obviously Kobe's not around to be part of that. Um, I was, I just did a Mario Not Bros podcast yesterday and we talked about The Last Dance. And I said that the next kind of singular season that I would want to see a focus on would be probably the third championship with the Lakers before that team got split up with Shaq getting, you know, sent out of town, but it's hard to see that working when you've only got half the story, you know, unless you've got this massive um, archival interview footage with Kobe that you can use. It's, it's going to be, you know, similar to the way that Jerry Krause wasn't around to defend himself. You're not going to have Kobe's side of it. Right, and that and that's kind of the key thing is there are two distinct sides to Shaq and Kobe, and both are right in some regards and both are wrong in some regards. And mm. if you're not presenting that in a neutral, impartial way where they both get their chance, it's just probably rub people the wrong way, especially because Kobe is, in fact, not even here to defend himself. So, yeah. yeah. Man, that, it'll be a shame if we don't get something, but, like, I mean, I, I just don't know this off the top of my head if there's any other, like, tapes that were there. Like, because, like, the, the reason we had this is Jordan had this crew and it's because it was Jordan. This was his sixth championship mm. run. He was so famous. Like, now people have crews all the time, like Wade and Chris Paul. There, there's more of this yeah. stuff going on now. But, like, I, I don't know if there was anything in for early Kobe like this, especially when the Shaq stuff's blowing up. So... 
this kind of like newfound footage or it is intriguing footage like that. That's enough to having enough there to cut up and make a doc. I'd, you know, I'm sure people already have thoughts on this that are more in the know than us, but it's probably more challenging than we, we expect. Yeah. I mean, even having said that all the old footage that we've seen in this documentary was pretty comprehensive during those ball seasons, like whether it was stuff that we're seeing, around the games in 93 92 91 so i'm sure there would be plenty of footage of uh the lakers like new dynasty to kind of make that work but yeah i think there's definitely people who would would be taking kobe's side that can speak to that but it's um yeah we'll see Uh, 30 for 30 still cranking content out so maybe it's on the list i'm sure we'll get it at some point but I was going to say, an, a nice addendum to this series would be probably going and watching Michael's Hall of Fame speech where he talks about a lot of the things that motivated him throughout his career. And it, it also kind of nails home this point that Jordan isn't that nice of a guy. He doesn't come across very well in that speech. No. No. But then but then to, to follow that with the Kobe Bryant Memorial where he spoke so well and so kindly about Kobe and that kind of encapsulates the influence that he's had on the current generation uh well i guess that kobe's had on the current generation but that michael had on kobe's generation of players through the 2000s and that kind of leaves a better taste in your mouth i think than the hall of fame speech right and to that point i thought one of my absolute favorite moments in the doc which i'm sure he touched on when it happened was when michael was pressed on perception of him as a teammate and mm. you know being unfriendly and, and and bullying and all that and the way he just kind of talked about his overall approach to winning and success and how if you didn't want to play that way just don't play that way and you could actually tell that he really felt that because he you know mm. kind of started tearing up and asked for a break with the interview and that really like set it home for me it's like he he, he was generally an asshole that's pretty well known but like it was for a specific reason and uh, mm. it seemed like at the end of the day that was his his, his main main focus so i really like that moment and uh yeah even even the the republicans buy shoes too i thought he gave a good answer for that as well so um <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he, i mean he comes he comes off really well in this and that's what you'd expect considering he was involved in the creation of the yeah. doc <laughs> <laughs> it, it it is interesting though because he had said before going into this like it it was gonna almost like this is gonna change the way a lot of people see me for the worse like he it was almost preparing people for the like the trash talk and the bullying against his teammates and i don't know if that was just like to make it look like it wasn't that bad once you finally saw it but ultimately it it feels like people will be coming out of this with the more respect for Michael, with a greater appreciation for him, with an understanding for why he treated people the way he did, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like I was saying before, very few of the talking heads in the doc are saying anything that inflammatory about Michael, even if they really feel that way. Even Isaiah Thomas is pretty cordial when they're talking to him. Mm. So, and and, and we kind of move through the gambling stuff pretty fast in the last dance where it almost pivots kind of instantly to like the, the coverage and the constant questions about the gambling that Michael has yeah. and the media's reaction to it. Right. And 
I did think the he did have that one quote though that I thought was pretty telling was uh what was it a uh, um I don't have a gambling problem I have a was it a winning problem or a competition problem yeah. and then he says, it's yeah. not like I it's not like I lost my house or anything you know it's like well you you sound exactly like the people we're thinking about with this that yeah. was that was pretty great I did enjoy that but we moved through it pretty fast yeah. I don't think it was a cliche at the time that he said it, but it's very much a cliche for like a gambling addict now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and like, like, you know, we move through it fast, but like these random people that he's associated with, like the debts he had, and it's like, it, it, it was pretty sketchy. And for someone as famous and successful as him to be associated with these ra- kind of random people, it was kind of, kind of strange, you know? And mm. I actually would have appreciated a few more comments from, from Jordan just about it as his general thoughts about it now. Like, all right. Well, well, we'll wrap this up with a last question in terms of like talking about Jordan's legacy. Uh, obviously, it's fairly well cemented, but Brendan asks, Brendan White asks, if Jordan hadn't retired for the first time, would they have gone four in a row and defeated the Rockets or would the Knicks have knocked them out of the Eastern Conference Finals? And and I'm, I, I was like once of the opinion, like a lot of people just like making grand assumptions without understanding how these things work that you know if he hadn't retired well they would have won eight championships in a row obviously because he was the best in the game and they won every Mm -hmm. time he was there but like you watch this and like you think about it a bit more and it's like yeah like it it makes sense you can't win that long like you can't keep that up can you and those teams were so good my my question right there is Horace Grant back because if Horace is gone then I say no unless you've already got Rodman you know like it's the team construction matters, especially when you're going up against freaking Hakeem Olajuwon, you know? So (laughs) they're funny. They're fun thought experiments, but I mean, it's tough to make the case when you look at like the the whole, the whole, like you look at the salary gap. Could they have brought everyone back? And like, would it have actually worked? Who would have had, like, what would have happened? If you really try and be as logical about it as possible, I think it's hard to make the case. Yeah. And I guess as the Knicks fan, what was your view of watching these seasons where, you know, as much as things have been, rough for the Knicks in the last kind of 10 years or 20 years <laughs> sorry uh like this was a painful time for Knicks fans but it was also like the best dynasty that they've probably had since like the 70s yeah I mean they make the playoffs every season of the decade right and mm-hmm. you know you have a hall of famer in Ewing and so it gets so close especially with especially in the beginning I mean teams that were played really well but like you know anthony mason and oakley and john starks they're not exactly like hall of fame talents you know and that it it's a very very new york ethos so it it was painful to see that stuff especially when we see like the charles smith infamy and my dad sent me a very expletive filled uh text when that came up about how he was uh, not called there's no fouls called with that that play and stuff (laughs) like that um but uh yeah, it it, it kind of sucks, and it's you know it, obviously it open social media up to laugh. Aha, look at the Knicks fans all triggered right now. Blah blah blah. Um, <laughs> I will say, you know the the Jazz are actually taking more L's at the moment. You know the Knicks stole uh, Walt Perrin, their well-respected uh, scout, and also the Jazz lost uh, Bogdanovich to wrist surgery. Literally, uh, was it today? Yesterday? So that's nice, I guess. But yeah, no, it's uh, it, 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 it was. Uh, it, it, it's tough to revisit, you know, and the 99 team too, I think that obviously that, that was not uh, part of the stock, but that's another one where it's like more than anything, you think the 99 team 
uh, had a really good chance too. So, mm. yeah, it sucks. Uh, it probably suck less if uh, there was more success of late. But given the drought, apart from some brief mellow years, it's uh, it's not fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess we could wrap up to say like it's been so nice. So, like, yeah, it's just been great to delve into nostalgia with this for me and to a time where my Bulls team was relevant to, you know, when the Knicks were relevant and basketball was a bit different than it is now. And I hope that it gives people an appreciation for what's come in the past. You know, it it stokes those fires of the whole LeBron versus MJ discussion. Uh, We could talk about that for like half an hour, but we won't. So we'll save that for (laughs) another podcast maybe. But yeah, I, I really hope and I really think that this will motivate some of our modern players to look at MJ's approach and maybe, maybe hopefully come a bit harder at uh, at their game and at their approach and their mentality to basketball. Maybe we'll see some harder fouls next season. We'll yeah. see. I will say my, uh, my Canadian son, RJ Barrett, said he was soaking it all in, which was good to hear. Happy, ha- happy yeah. RJ is uh, watching that film. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'll keep an eye on RJ whenever the uh, season resumes. But for now, thank you for joining us. Uh, where can people catch you, Dave, on social medias? Yeah, absolutely. So you can follow me on Twitter at Martin Swagger. That's M-A-R-T-I-N-S-W-A-G-R. And you can follow my podcast, as John mentioned, Nostalgia. We cover music, movie, and television every week, youtube.com slash nostalgiapod, as well as all your podcast services. So if you're into that kind of stuff hit us up and added a long time. I really enjoy that. And the last dance we talked about there too, but I think this is, you know, from, from that culture angle, ESPN decided to move, move this up. The doc was not feature lock yet. They were mm. still editing those last two eps, yeah. episodes and it ca- came at a great time given the state of the world, man. And as you said, the nostalgia, uh, it was just kind of good to have everyone just kind of fall back into and have a appointment viewing for a lot of people too, to really look forward to every yeah. week. Definitely. Even for people who weren't around for the first time, it's, it's great to kind of re-educate ourselves, which is really cool. So you can follow me on socials at Jono himself. Uh, thanks again, Dave, for, for jumping on. Thanks to uh, Matt Tilby for hosting the previous uh, Last Dance recaps for Logan Wilkinson, who's been ready to jump in uh, whenever we've asked him to, to step up for sending in questions. Uh, to also Brendan and my brother Dan for doing that too. Uh, and you dear listeners for joining us on this wild ride of the last dance i'm I'm sure that we won't uh completely stop providing nba content there's not a whole lot to talk about but hopefully some news soon we've got our fingers crossed and for now keep dreaming and go bulls